I know I've been prayed for and we've uh, prayed a couple of times already, but I'll pray one more time while the little kids are on their way out. Uh, Let's pray together. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, Jesus told a parable uh, where He indicated that there would be various responses to Your Word. And we simply ask You that Your Word would find uh, good soil, deep soil, this morning, that it might yield a harvest. Uh, Father, would we not be uh, those who are choked out by the world's cares uh, or who let the Word kind of dissipate uh, in our hearts uh, due to the the heat of our anxieties. Uh, Father, please give us the Holy Spirit. Work in us uh, for Your own glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, we uh, did the Apostles' Creed this morning. Uh, Maybe that is uh, something that you've memorized. Uh, It's the core statement of the Christian faith. Um, Every item in it is crucial, and it wouldn't be inappropriate to do a series of sermons uh, on the various uh, assertions uh, in the Apostles' Creed, Uh, especially the way that we talk about Jesus. I've mentioned this before. Uh, We say that we believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day He rose again from the dead, and He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And uh, if you're old like me, you remember the next line is, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Uh, Those things are all cornerstone items of our understanding of Jesus. And if there was a sermon series uh, on those various assertions, uh, when you got to is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, you would preach a sermon or you would expect to hear a sermon uh, from Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, the, the question is, what is the impact, what is the upshot of Jesus being seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty? Uh, in, a, in a short way, someone told me one time that uh, they attended a church where the minister would, uh, you know, proclaim the doctrines and, and everything that the Bible was teaching, and then he would say, so what? Uh, and then he would go on for another 10 minutes uh, bringing it home. And so the question is, so what uh, regarding Jesus being seated at the right hand of God the Father? Uh, We are at a critical juncture uh, in Hebrews. Most commentators say that uh, verse 19 uh, of chapter 10 uh, is the turning point uh, in this letter or sermon. And these first 18 verses of chapter 10 are really recapping chapter 9 Uh, But they're also turning to the critical concern at the end of the letter, and that critical concern is the call to obedience and to faithfulness. So basically what's being said in this passage is what was said in chapter 9, but again with a different inflection as it moves towards this call uh, to obedience and to faithfulness. And that's really been the goal all along. That's why the preacher preached the sermon or the writer wrote the letter uh, the reason that the, of the, that the eternal high priesthood of Jesus has been taught so thoroughly. Uh, back in chapter 4, when the topic of Jesus' high priesthood 
was introduced where he was called a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, uh, the writer wrote that by Jesus' death and resurrection, and here's the quote, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Uh, So obedience has been in the mind uh, of the writer, of the preacher from the very beginning. And again, in this passage, there is simply a wondrous use of the Old Testament. I, I think that's one of the highlights of the book of Hebrews, is just to go through and notice how the Old Testament is used. Uh, so, with that as an introduction, let's read together. Or you don't have to read, you can just hear, you can just listen. Uh, but here is the Word of God, the first 18 verses of Hebrews chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified." And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them in those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds, then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the Word of God. Let's see what we can do with it. I've got four points. I'm going to kind of march right through them. I'm going to go from the beginning to the end of the passage. The first point is simply this, the inadequacy of the old covenant, the old system, the old arrangement, the old deal is demonstrated in its repetitiveness. Now, verses 2 and 3 are kind of parenthetical. I think it would be good to read them that way. So, the main point, the emphasis is uh, verses 1 to 4. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, 
by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. But in these sacrifices, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So, in the old system, no one's conscience was cleansed, no one's behavior was improved, there wasn't any internal sanctification being wrought by the Holy Spirit by these repeated sacrifices of bulls and goats. There was no spiritual power uh, in, in those sacrifices. You know, and this is one of the things that we need to think about and have in front of our minds is the presence or the accessibility or the reality of spiritual power. The Apostle Paul, when he's laying it down for the first time in Romans, said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe, that there is spiritual power in the gospel. There is spiritual power in what Jesus has done that we access by faith. And there was no such power in the Old Covenant. The people of Israel were literally just going through the motions. That's all they were doing. Point number two, they won't all be this short. Instead of those worthless sacrifices, Jesus offered His own body, uh, starting in verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. This is Psalm 40. Uh, that's being quoted. And it's interesting that in the context of Jesus saying, you have presented a body for me that my body is going to replace all of these sacrifices, these goats and bulls, that my blood is going to be shed rather than theirs. He indicates the hypocrisy that ruined the rituals more times than not. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Now, this is hard to think about. It needs some nuancing. It needs some careful kind of teasing apart, and maybe you can do that in private conversations later in the day. But it's a strong theme in the Old Testament. God did not delight in their sacrifices because, by and large, their hearts were far from Him. They thought they were doing a good thing. They thought they were being impressive. They thought that God would notice their exercises and pat them on the back and say, good on you. How much more in our day and age when we have this vision of God as a celestial Santa Claus who is essentially lonely unless we pay him some attention? You know, we often have the sense of You know, God is quite pleased and relieved in a sense that we've shown up in order to sing these songs. Well, David wrote in Psalm 51, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Samuel says the same thing. You remember when he sent Saul off with a word from the Lord that you're to go kill the Amalekites and leave nothing, and uh, Saul decided to bring back Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and the choice livestock, and he said, hey, I'm only here to do an offering. You know, that's why I've disregarded the Word of God, uh, because I'm here to do an offering. I'm here to do a good thing. I've taken it into my own hands to do this good thing. And Samuel says to Saul, 
Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Isaiah similarly wrote, what to me, this is in the first chapter of Isaiah, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. And there are many other such passages from Jeremiah, Micah, Amos. Probably the best known is from Hosea chapter 6, which is cited by Jesus. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So God saw their hearts, and He was not impressed. And God sees your heart and sees my heart. He's not impressed with our religious activities when our hearts are far from Him. Not impressed at all. The fake it till you make it has got a certain amount of wisdom, but only a small part of it. Most of it is a seedbed of hypocrisy. So Jesus offers His body, offers His blood in the place of those repeated offerings of blood and goats to take away sins. And, and in order to enhance the contrast, I want to dig a little bit deeper. To enhance the contrast between the old and the new, uh, we need to note, although it's not obvious here, uh, that Jesus offered His own body happily. You know, we're, we're Holy Week. This is uh, Palm Sunday. Uh, this is something to contemplate today and as we head into the week in, we, in which we remember Jesus' passion. We're going to remember on Thursday and Friday the cost of Jesus' obedience, the grief of the supper with His betrayer, the abandonment of His friends, the denial of Peter, and the howling of His people that He be crucified crucify Him, uh, all the way to His forsakenness on the cross. But don't make the mistake of forgetting the essential heart of Jesus during this week. We won't get to it till chapter 12 in Hebrews, but I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. I want this to sink in. Uh, Hebrews 12.2 says that He does all of this for the joy that was set before Him. He did it for the joy that was set before him. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. He delights to do the Father's will. That's what happens actually in Psalm 40. If you go look up Psalm 40 and read these verses, the next verse uh, after the ones that are quoted here in Hebrews are, I delight is, I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. So that's the way it's written, actually, in the Psalms. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Um, New Testament scholars have observed, and I think they're on target, uh, that when a small verse is referred to in the New Testament, it often incorporates and, um, and understands that the people will take the whole context into account. Uh, when they're listening to it. So it's Jesus' delight 
to obey his Father, to procure our redemption, uh, to bring us all together. He does this gladly. The third point is that the indication of the efficacy of this work, this sacrifice, is that Jesus sat down. Now, in a sense, you know, we can kind of say that the the hint of the efficacy is in his resurrection, and, and we wouldn't be wrong. You know, that's what happens at the beginning of Romans. You know, that Jesus was declared uh, to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. And that, that phrase, the Son of God, if you ever read it in Paul's writings, it is kind of intended to be shouted. He was declared by his resurrection from the dead, the Son of God with power. But in a different way. And in a way that is equally emphatic, the indication of the efficacy of his work is that he sits down. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. No one, no one, no one sits in the presence of God. And, and it, that is demonstrated very clearly with the work of the priests. The priests were on their feet for the entirety of their work, and they would not dare have sat down while they were about their work of offering sacrifices. And this act certifies, when Jesus sits down, it certifies that there need be no other sacrifice. So, that you know, that hymn, you know, which sounds a little sentimental, Jesus paid it all, is actually spot on. You know, it would be good to do that lyric with some uh, hardcore rock and roll power chords. Because that's a powerful assertion. He paid it all. He is done. And he is seated at the right hand of the majesty. And these words, once for all, uh, really are, are quite potent in verse 10 and then in verse 12 and then in verse 14. Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, in verse 14, he perfected for all time those who were being sanctified. That's strong stuff, and it ought not be minimized or discounted. You know, this notion has been compromised in the world of sports. When when I was a a young man, uh, you know, I was a little pup, and I was enamored with Muhammad Ali. I don't know if any of you my age similarly enamored. In fact, when he came back from his, you know, sojourn. He, he was banned from boxing, and, uh, and he was coming back to fight Joe Frazier, and I was a freshman in college. I called my dad. My dad sent me, I think, 50 bucks a month to live on, and I said, oh, dad, I could really use another $20 this month, and he said, oh, son, I'm glad to send it to you with one proviso, and I said, what is that? He said, you do not pay that money to go watch that fight at the gym on closed circuit TV. Uh, so I didn't see it. But, but Muhammad Ali, comically, used to boast that he was the greatest of all time. I don't know if you remember that. Of all time. And it was a, an act, and it was a joke, except that it was corrupting what should be said only of Jesus. And actually, it's common parlance in the sports world now, in the world of sports fandom, uh, to argue about or to propose uh, that someone is the GOAT, 
the greatest of all time. Who's the best baseball player? Who's the best pitcher? Who's the best football player? Who's the best golfer? And these are silly notions, but they really are reflective of the hubris that we can put on without even noticing it. You know, professional sports have only been around for a hundred years or so. Human history has only been recorded for a few thousand years. The universe itself might be young or old, depending on how you understand Genesis, but it's not eternal. And so when Jesus redeemed his people once for all, for all time, when he redeemed you and me by the sacrifice of his body, perfecting us for all time, it was a cosmic accomplishment that cannot be compared to any other human endeavor. It was more vast than you and I can imagine. And so don't let these words scoot by you without appreciating the gravity that's there. We, you know, we also have cheapened the word awesome. But this is awesome. This is awesome what Jesus did. And I would love to chase another rabbit trail, but I won't do it. But it is also awesome that in verse 10, we are described as having been sanctified. By that will, we have been sanctified, as though it's concluded, as though it's a done deal, as though there's nothing left to do. But then we're described in verse 14, he has perfected for all time those who are currently being sanctified. Now, this is good, rich, Reformed theology, that we understand that we are at one and the same time, and it's hard to hang on to it. It'll evade your grasp. It'll slip right out of your hands. But we are at the same time always both uh, sinners and saints. Martin Luther got fancy with it, used Latin, we are simul justus et peccator. We are at the same time, never anything more or anything less than sinners who are also saints. We have been definitively sanctified, yet we are currently being sanctified. And if those of you worry about your sanctification process and say, oh, I'm just not so sure you know, I, I, I'm, I'm rattled by this, I'm not sure I'm a Christian or not, then hang on uh, to that verse 10. By that will we have been sanctified. Now, the word sanctified there actually means made holy. It could mean saved. We have been sanctified, and it is a done deal. But those of you who are kind of smug, and you say, oh yeah, I'm saved. I got, I got saved back then, and it doesn't really matter what's going on in my life. I can carry grudges. I can fudge on my honesty. I can let this and that slip. You know, you need to pull yourself back to those who are being sanctified. So both of these are held in glorious, I don't even want to call it tension. They're both gloriously true uh, all the time. So that gets us to the fourth point. The upshot is the new covenant. So we're back to what 
what the writer described in chapter 9, that Jesus is the bringer of the new covenant, that he is the mediator of the new covenant. I think it actually started in chapter 8. He brings the new covenant that was described in Jeremiah. He is the mediator of the new covenant. And here's how it's brought up. It's brought up in terms of the Holy Spirit speaking. The upshot of the new covenant is specifically that new hearts have been given and complete forgiveness has been granted, complete. The Holy Spirit bears witness to us. After saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them in those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them in their minds. I mean, that's the, that's the first point. I will put my laws on their hearts. And we talked about this a little bit in the Sunday school class this morning. You know, that one of the things that you absolutely cannot miss is the necessity in the Bible of having a faith that is heartfelt, of having a relationship with the Lord that is a relationship of the heart. And in many ways, that's what you ought to be um, pursuing. As you worship, as you hear a sermon, as you read the Bible on your own, as you pray, as you interact in meaningful fellowship with one another, that you're looking for heart engagement. Now, again, I'm, I'm, I'm as liable as anybody to read the Bible as though I was reading the sport page and it doesn't get to me. But that's deficient. I might need to back up and say, I'm going to read this again. And you keep reading. And it might not happen all the time. I think, you know, somebody that I really respect told me that it only happens for him two, three times a year. Nonetheless, that's the goal. That's what we're looking for is engagement of the heart. And so the upshot of Jesus' complete sacrifice once for all, for all time, is that new hearts have been given. I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. It doesn't actually say new hearts here, but that's the general idea, and that's the way it's described elsewhere in the Bible. And then secondly... Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. I remember when I was a high school student and first starting to have the gospel preached to me, it didn't make sense and it didn't click until my freshman year of college. But I remember a guy uh, preaching. He was the president of a Christian college and he was quoting Psalm 103, I will separate their sins as far from them as the east is from the west. And, you know, it's funny how things stick in your brain, but he just said, that, that's pretty far apart. That's pretty far apart. So these old sacrifices, this old religion going through the motions, all of these activities of the sacrifices and the festivals and the feasts and the calendar, all that stuff was, was fruitless, It was useless when it came to effecting a deep sense of one's forgiveness, and it was useless in terms of effecting a heart that was inclined towards God. With the new covenant that Jesus mediates, hearts are changed. Forgiveness is definitively given so that those who entrust themselves to Jesus can trust and obey from the heart. From the heart. There's a difference between religious observance and walking by faith. Let's be clear about that. I mentioned this morning in the Sunday school class that uh, in this book, 
uh, that we kind of covered this morning. It's called Gospel People. There are a few copies of it in chapter and verse. Uh, testimonials from Augustine, uh, from Martin Luther, and from John Wesley are detailed and quoted. And, uh, and the Luther one I'm going to read you. And remember that re- Luther was a religious monk. Uh, he was, and you know, by a lot of measures, sold out for Jesus. He'd given his life hook, line, and sinker. He had violated his parents' wishes, uh, and he went into the monastery, and, uh, and he poured over the Bible and spent way too long in the confessional. There's even a story of him being in the confessional and uh, for hours. And then as he was walking home, realized he'd done it all from a bad motivation, so he doubled back in. Uh, pity his poor confessor. Uh, you again? Uh, but then he read Romans chapter 1, Romans 1.17, for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And, and this is what he wrote. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is not that by which the righteous lives by a gift of… excuse me. There I began to understand that the righteousness righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by the gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which God justifies us by faith. Here it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. That's a great twist on the righteous will live by faith. He who through faith is righteous shall live. And then here's what Luther said. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. You know, religious observance, religious rigor… even in the church of Christ, can perilously slide into something in which the heart is disengaged. You can easily slide into a situation in which these contemplations that we will have this week on Thursday, Friday, and then on Sunday will will have very little impact. And, And that's a place where you need to come back to what's being said here in Hebrews 10 and in 7, 8, and 9. Uh, or Romans chapter 1, or simply actually what Spurgeon's advice was is that if you're feeling cold-hearted about the gospel, just go read the accounts of the crucifixion and read them again and again and again, and he was fairly sure that it would break through. You know, Wesley was very similar. Wesley was a a theological, not a theological, but a religious giant. I don't know if you know his story. He was uh, the son of a pastor and uh, as the son of a pastor was afforded uh, attendance at a prestigious university, and there he and his brother formed the Holy Club, and they badgered everybody into rigorous obedience and cracked the whip over them and actually came to Georgia with the Moravians in order to do missions work, still cracking the whip over everybody's head. He wrote letters back to England saying, you know, you guys are all a bunch of slackers, you know, because you're not here doing the work of the Lord, and it all came crashing down. 
I mean, his bitterness, his anger, his heartlessness came crashing in on him, and the congregation here said, you need to go home. And he went back home in shame. But then he talked about going to a Bible study. He attended a Bible study, and apparently Luther's preface to the book of Romans, to his commentary on Romans, was being read, and he said he felt his heart strangely warmed and there for the first time trusted Christ. You know, that he moved from this simple religious observance, heartless religious observance, to uh, engaging with the love of God, engaging with relationship with God. He ran and told his brother Charles. Charles said he sat up all night. He wrote this in his diary, laboring to feel who loved me and gave himself for me, you know, from, from Galatians. I am crucified with Christ, no longer I who live. The life uh, that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Luther was very bullish on the sense that real Christianity was a religion of pronouns, who loved me and gave himself for me. Well, we're going to need this. You're going to need this as we make our way into the last part of Hebrews. Because what's going to happen from this point on is the writer or the preacher is going to press for obedience. He's going to say, you need to obey, you need to meet together, you need to encourage one another to love and good deeds. And if you're not clear on the perfect, for all time, sufficiency of Christ's death for you, that call for obedience will be distorted. Be distorted one way or another. It'll either be distorted into a crushed spirit where you can't bear the burden that's put, put on you, uh, or more likely it'll be distorted as fuel for self righteousness and hypocrisy. See, we got to be clear on this. And I hope your engagement this week will be thorough. You know, it's a, it's a great opportunity to be able to bracket your day uh, with morning and evening worship. Uh, and to receive the Lord's Supper, you know, by which we understand the Lord will nourish us. And then you get to do it again on, on Thursday. And Friday, actually, some people have argued it's the most important day in the whole Christian year uh, when we get together to think about the price that was paid. So, just ask yourself the question, uh, what of your own heart what of your own heart is engaged with this? I love Bob Dylan's line, let us not talk falsely now, the hour is getting late. Are your religious activities a sham? Are they exhausting rather than energizing you? Are your relationships so damaged that mercy and grace have dried up? Is your prayer life feeble or even maybe non-existent? Let us not talk falsely now. The hour is getting late. We're among friends. We can have these conversations. We love each other. But more than that, Jesus loves you for all time. This great Savior, this great high priest, this one who delighted to die for his people, who walked to the cross with joy, stands to save you, and all you need to do is ask him to do so. And that's good news, isn't it?
Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want so much. to know the glorious freedom of the children of God. We want so much to know the beauty and the grace of the broken and contrite heart. We want so much to know the power of the resurrection as we know the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. And here this week, we would not squander the time Uh, We ask you to come and help us. Uh, We ask you to raise our eyes from our feet uh, to look to the glory of what has been done because you love the world so much that you sent your only son. So please give us this grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.